come before you now and we, we ask that you might open your book for us. <laughs> Thank you that it's your book. And all scriptures God breathes. It's profitable for us in so many ways. So thank you for it. Help us to have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say. May be able to take it off the page or off the device, whatever means we're looking at it, and, and more importantly, implant it into our souls. It might produce a life that looks like Christ and bring glory to him. Help me in communicating to be clear. And may we be convicted, if that's what is needed, encouraged, if that's what is required. Uh, Have your way in each of our hearts and lives, we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. So we are, as I I said, we're in the book of Romans. A couple weeks ago, we did kind of a a flyover. We just started this study. We did a flyover it, kind of looking at a forest from up above, seeing how big the forest is, how beautiful it is from a distance. And then last week, we started to walk into the forest and the first trail that we could, and that was verses 1 through 7. And and in those verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Paul is kind of laying out uh, an official report. Really, the verse 15 verses of Romans 1 is an introduction to the rest of the letter. But he starts out with an official report, and he does that because he's never visited this church. He didn't plant this church. He may know some people that are there. He does. But he's never visited that church. Kind of like the letter to the Colossians. He hadn't visited that church either. Hadn't and really started it. So he feels like he needs to get on board an official statement of who he is as he writes to them, and he's going to be giving them instruction and, and clarification on the most important subject of all, the, the doctrine of uh, salvation. And, and we saw last week that he starts out with his calling in this official report. He starts out with his calling in verse 1, St. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he was, he was a, a slave. He understood he'd been bought with a price by the blood of Christ. He was owned by God. And, and consequently, he was to be a servant of the Lord, a slave of the Lord, doing his bidding. More than that, he was a called apostle. He wasn't appointed by other men. He didn't self-appoint himself as an apostle. He was appointed by God. He was a called apostle. An apostle, one who is sent out with a mission or with a commission. And, uh, and then finally made sure that uh, we understood what that was. He said, set apart for the gospel of God. So he was a slave. He was a called apostle, and he was one who had been set apart uh, by God for the gospel of God. Set apart by God for the gospel of God. That was his calling. And then we, we looked at his message, which is verses uh, verse 2 and three and four, where he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So that is his message. The, 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 the gospel of God is his message, but he explains that the gospel of God is specifically related to 
something that was promised by God. We saw that, that was on your insert. It was promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures. God spoke through the prophets, not just about what was occurring in their day, but what would occur when the Messiah, the promised one, would come. And I think that's oftentimes lost by people. They think that you know Christianity started in the New Testament, so that's all I need to really pay attention to. But the, the truth is, the whole Bible is Christological. It is centered on Christ. Even the Old Testament, promise after promise after promise about his coming. So he was promised, and, and the promise was about a person. That was the second thing that we talked about. And that person is God's son, concerning his son, he said. And I pointed out three things in, in that. It, number one was that he was eternally God. He was the son of God before ever he ever was born of the seed of David. He was eternally the son of God. And the counsels of God, they decided before God spoke creation into existence, this is the plan. We're going to have a savior for sinful mankind. I know they haven't been created yet, but... This is what they're going to do. We're going to have a Savior. Son, you're the Savior. Concerning his Son. He was eternally the Son of God. But he stepped into time and space when he was born, uh, descended from David, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, meaning his humanity. He became a person. Sorry, the, could you say that again? No. The <laughs> Word became flesh. And tabernacled amongst us is how uh, John put it in his gospel, chapter 1 and 14 of John. So he became flesh. He became like sinful man. He didn't become a sinful man. In Romans 8, Paul's going to make that very clear. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't come in sinful flesh. He never sinned, which is why he could be the Savior. And uh, so, but he had to become a man to be a the savior of mankind and so he did and then the third thing he jumps to the end the, the the other end of Christ's life on the earth and he says that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead so the the resurrection was God's statement he is my son now he's already been referred to as the son of God eternally but here is like this is a statement it's like he is the son the power to raise from the dead proves that there's a great evidence of jesus christ being the god man who is it he said make sure we understand who this person is that was promised jesus christ our lord jesus was his human name he is the Savior. Christ was his office. He was the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is the Lord himself. He is God. He is God. Well, that's where we left off. And so we got one more thing to do in that first section. You still have your insert. Uh, there are a few on the table over there. If you don't have an insert or you forgot yours and you want to take any notes, raise your hand and uh, uh, maybe Chris or no one's needs it. Okay, that's good.
good deal. You brought your inserts with you. So we, we need to look at his ministry. We've seen his calling, his message, and then in verses 5 through 7, his ministry, where he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So the third thing that he tells us about himself centers on his ministry. Once again, he refers to himself as an apostle, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. By the way, the whom, that pronoun, you love grammar, right? A pronoun stands in place of a noun. So the whom is referring right back to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 4. So the whom is Christ. So Christ gave to Paul grace and apostleship. But you, you might have noticed that it says we have received grace and apostleship. So was he referring to the other apostles? Was he referring to, you know, the, the twelve? Uh, you know, minus Judas, who was then be replaced by Matthias. I don't personally think so. I, I think what he's doing is uh, he's using what is, is called in grammar the plural of category. Or we might put it in this term, the royal we. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's the same idea. The idea when you plural the, the subject like that, put it as a we instead of I, uh, it, 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 it's used to focus on the principle that is being addressed or the, the, uh, the work that the person is engaged in rather than focusing on the person. And, and so Paul is referring to himself, not to all the apostles, but he, is, he wants to place the focus on Christ and what Jesus had commissioned him to do and to be rather than focusing on himself. The big deal for him was not himself, but Christ the Lord. And, and, and grace and apostleship, he says, he received. And that may refer to two separate things, right? I mean, grace could be a reference to God's unmerited favor in saving Paul. I mean, how many of you received the grace of God? Yeah, I hope everyone. Yeah, and we think the grace of God, we're saved by grace, right? By grace. And that could be what he means. And then apostleship would refer to the office that he was commissioned to fulfill. He's always called himself a called apostle in verse 1. And, and it could be that. But more likely, I think Paul is saying that the office of apostleship was a gracious gift given to him by Christ. It wasn't a deserved position. Right? Grace is unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. And I think what he's saying is this was an undeserved thing, this apostleship that he was given by Christ. And that is especially true of Paul more so than the, the twelve. Remember the twelve, they were the guys that ministered with Christ, ministered alongside of him for those three. They, I mean, they had followed him. They had, you know, ultimately they would give their life for him. But I mean, these guys, they were the good guys. Paul, not so much. I mean, he was known as the most notorious persecutor of the church when the church was first formed. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8 and then in 9. I mean, it is striking that the, the activities that Paul uh, went about going after Christians, 
going after them, to, to put them in jail, even to lead to their death. And he wasn't satisfied just to stick around Jerusalem. He wanted to go other places like Damascus to you know, seize people and bring them back and make them pay for being a follower of Jesus. <laughs> in grace, Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and his life was changed forever, right? He was no longer that persecutor of the church, but that's what he had been. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Christ. The whole chapter is about the resurrection of Christ. And in the first part of it, in verses 3 and 4, he kind of summarizes the gospel, is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then in verses 5 through 8, he talks about the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Names a bunch of the apostles, he puts them in order, and, and he even says that he appeared to over 500 people at one time after he was resurrected, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote that epistle. And then he says... And to me, he appeared as one untimely born. And, and then in verses 9 uh, and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, the, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was work in me. I was the, I didn't deserve this more than those other people because I was this persecutor of the church. And in persecuting the church, I was persecuting Jesus. Jesus had said to him on the Damascus road, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that's what he had been, and he acknowledges that. And so it was God's grace that had reached him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he wrote, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, called an apostle, right? Appointed by God, appointed by Christ to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He received gracious, a gracious gift of apostleship from the very one that he had been persecuting. That's not Jesus getting even. That's Jesus being gracious. Our God is gracious. Amen. Amen. And then he turns his attention to the purpose and the scope of his ministry. And, and he puts the overriding purpose of his role as an apostle in these words. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, among the nations. Now, this doesn't, doesn't mean, as some think, that Paul's purpose, he, he's saying that his purpose was to see people live a life of obedience after they had become Christians. Though he will write elsewhere in his letters that such should be true of all believers, that they should live in obedience uh, to God and you know, do righteous things, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that 
He is, his purpose is, is to bring people about to obey the gospel, to obey the gospel in the sense that they obey the command of the gospel, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is a command. I mean, salvation is by grace alone, right? Through faith alone and Christ alone, and it's not tied to any good works, lest we would end up boasting about it. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, while that is true, there is an act of obedience that is necessary to be saved. It is believing. It's a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul would write it this way in another place, 2 Timothy 1.8. Now, in, in 2, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in that section, he's talking about believers who are suffering at the hands of unbelievers. And he tells them that God will help them, you know, bring comfort to them, will reward them. And then he turns his attention to those that are causing the suffering to believers. And basically what he says is that God's judgment on unbelievers will be such that he will inflict vengeance. This is the quoting it now, verse 8. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, there is one command to be obeyed in order to be saved. And that command, again, is to believe. I'll give you another example of it. Acts 16. Acts 16, Paul's in Philippi preaches the gospel. He's arrested because he's causing all kinds of troubles. You know, he and Silas are put in stocks in prison. They're beat and put in stocks and they're singing praises to God that night, talking about the Lord like crazy. There's an earthquake. The Roman jailer uh, realizes that through the earthquake, all the doors have been open. And, and he thought, all my prisoners have escaped. I might as well kill myself because that will be my end if I lose my prisoners. And he's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas said, don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. And the jailer says to Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, why would he say that? Well, because he had been hearing them. They've been hearing them praise God even though they're in jail, even though they had beaten, they had heard him. They, they heard him singing praise to God. Probably some of the Psalms from the Old Testament. They're singing praise to God. They're thanking God for the opportunity to suffer for his namesake, as Jesus taught them they should. You know, and, and, and so the jailer is it's, it's struck by it. He said, What do I need to do to be saved? Now you probably know Paul's response, but I will say it all the same. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe, that verb, is a, it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not just a statement of reality, it's a command. You must believe in order to be saved. You know, it's not unlike John 6 where Jesus is talking about doing the, you know, that he is the bread of heaven, come down, and, you know, they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, and all that great chapter, John chapter 6. In the middle of it, the people say to Jesus, 
what do we need, what work of God do we need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe. He's like, believe? Is that a work? Yes, according to Jesus. It's the one work you need to do. What work is it? It's being obedient. You must believe. It's a call. A call, which is a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was his purpose, was to bring people to obedience to the gospel. Powerful. Powerful. And then the scope of Paul's ministry is explained as approach, you know, as proclaiming the gospel among all the nations, he says. Among all the nations. And this is a reference to the Gentiles. Maybe your, your translation has that, Gentiles. And whether the word ethnos, that's the Greek word, we get the word ethnic from it, right? And we're talking about cultures, nations, when we use that phrase. Uh, whether it's translated as Gentiles or nations, he's referring to those who were not, were not physical descendants of Abraham. They were not Jews. My, my scope of my ministry is primarily among non-Jewish people. Now, that didn't mean that Paul didn't reach out with the gospel to the Jews. In fact, he did. Every city where he took the gospel, the first place he headed in that city was to the Jewish synagogue, and he'd preach the gospel out of the Old Testament scriptures to them. General rule, they would reject what he said, and then he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. But he knew that, as Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And he will write in verse, six, uh, verse 16 and 17 that salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But he understood. He understood when, God, when Christ commissioned him that his primary ministry would be among Gentile people. He clearly understood that, that uh, that was God's gracious gift to him. And you notice they also understood that it, the, 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 the ministry that he was graciously given by God, by Christ, was to bring glory to Christ. That's the phrase, for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. His ministry was not about, it was not self-focused. It was not uh, about receiving the accolades of men. I mean, it was not about making a name for himself that would be remembered by the masses, which, by the way, seems to be what a lot of ministries are about today. It's all about the man. It's all about remembering the preacher's name or the ministry name, not necessarily Christ. And it's all about raising them up so that, well, they'll thought to be big. They'll be thought to be awesome they'll be almost thought of as God. Hmm. Not so with Paul. Not so with Paul. He understood it was about the glory being given to the Savior whom he, whom he served. Now in the final two verses of this section, Paul identifies whom he is writing to. Right? He says, all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Huh. Even though he hadn't planted the church in Rome, even though he hadn't visited the church in Rome, he still understood that it was under his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. So he was to 
to shepherd them. He was to care for them because they were under his area of authority and responsibility. And by the way, this hints at the fact that the church in Rome had a greater percentage of Gentiles in it than it did Jews. Now, it's clear as we go through the letter, there were Jews and Gentiles in the church, but the greater percentage would have been Gentiles, right? Because he's just said, for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, the nations among whom you are in Rome. You're, you're part of that group. Now, beautifully, I think it's so beautifully, he twice refers to them being called. Twice. In verse 6, it says, called of Jesus Christ. Now, the way the ESV translates that, maybe your translation has something different, but in verse 6, it puts it in, in, this, in this way. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. But a, a literal reading of the Greek text is, called of Jesus Christ. Called of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, it says in your text, to those who are in Rome who are loved of God and called to be saints. But literally, they are called saints. So, Paul has said in verse 1, I am a called apostle. And now he says to them, you are called saints. And, and that's not saying, people would say, oh, you're, you're one of those saints, aren't you? No, he's saying something more important, like they wouldn't say, oh, you're one of the apostles, right? No, I'm a called apostle, called by God. And we are saints because we've been called by God to be set apart from the consequence of sin and set apart unto the glory and purposes of God. That's what a saint is. And twice he refers to them in those terms. And by the way, that's just one of those, one of the many places where if you'll do an honest evaluation, you can see that there's some misunderstanding about what a saint is among people who call themselves Christians. I mean, some, you know, some religions, they think Christians can only be called saints after they've been dead a long time, and then you get to put them in some colored glass, or you get a statue about them. You know, or you call them saints because they're really holy people. You know, like, my pastor's a real saint. Or, you know, my grandmother was a real saint. Um, no, everyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ by grace through faith is a saint. Amen. Set apart from the consequence of sin unto God for his purpose and glory. That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. And, and by the way, notice also, he does not refer to them as those who love God, but those who are loved by God. Now, that, there's a difference there. Now, all believers should love God. In fact, Paul will say in Romans 8 that all who love God, you know, are those that have been called by God, right? We love God because he loved us first. But here is very significant because the whole focus has been on what God has done, what Jesus has done, what his commission is. And he says, listen, you are loved by God. That's why you're a saint. That's why you're called saint, because you were loved by God. Not because you loved God. Not because you loved God and you did what was good and right. You loved God because God loved you first. 
So the focus is on what God has done for people in the gospel and not what they've done for him. So I mentioned last week a a couple of applications. There's got to be application in this passage for us. All scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable, not just for Paul, who's writing this, or not just for the Romans who were reading it, you know, 2,000 years ago, but for us as well. And what were the applications or implications for this? And I'm, I mentioned that, that one implication is that Paul shouldn't be the only one who first and foremost thinks of himself as a slave of God. That's what every Christian should view themselves as being, a slave of God and righteousness. Why? Because they've been blood-bought, and they are owned by God. That's, you know, Acts 20, 28. It says that, that, you know, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We've been purchased, redeemed by the blood of Christ. He owns us. We are his slaves. Not like I'm a voluntary servant. No, he owns me. And I have a responsibility to obey him, to submit my life to him. Am I getting, am I, am I getting too hard? This is, this is what it is saying. This is what it's calling us to. And I also mentioned that every believer should understand that they've been called by God. They've been called by God, called saints, set apart by and for the gospel, set apart set apart by and for the gospel. And and listen, this is telling us, too, that the focus must always remain on his calling on our lives, not on us feeling what we should do for him. It's on his calling on our lives. Not only called to salvation and sanctification, but called to service as a slave. Okay, number three. I didn't mention this last week. In a general sense, we are meant to be apostles. This is with a little a, not a capital A. You know, there are 12 capital A plus 113 Paul capital A apostles. And the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's referring to those guys. But in a, in a true sense, we are people who are apostles. What was an apostle? One who is sent with a mission. One who is sent with a commission. We are sent with commission too. We've been given the ministry of sharing the good news, the gospel of God that you know has made provision for the forgiveness of sins and and the gift of eternal life through His Son. I mean, it should be our primary purpose in life to see people become obedient to the faith obedient to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may escape God's holy wrath and be welcomed into his eternal family. And and the scope of our ministry should be as broad as the people that God puts in our path. It's like, well, I'm only good with business people, or I'm only good with kids, or I'm only good with... No, no. It's as many people as God puts in our path that we should be wanting to reach. Now, I fall so far short of that. Maybe you do too. May God open our eyes to see this more and more. I mean, they need to hear the good news, and how will they hear it unless we tell them? Hmm, that sounds like what he'll say in chapter 10. 
So we, we wanted to share a couple of things with you that will assist you in doing that. On the windowsills back there, and there are a couple of books. One is the Gospel of John. looks just like this. It's the Gospel of John, written in the ESV. And at the back of that, there is a section called To Be a Christian. It explains the gospel, how you become a follower of Jesus Christ, how you trust in Christ. You can take that and give it to people. Say, hey, would you be willing to read through the gospel of John with me? I'd be glad to read with you. We can do it separately, but we could get together and talk about the gospel of John. And uh, I'd love to do that with you. Would you do that with me? Let me give you this. It's a way in. Instead of just walking up to them and saying, hey, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God died for your sin? Well, yeah, I guess I believe that. Well, then pray this prayer. Now you're saved. Bye-bye. No, you know, you can interact with people if you'll just get them to read the Scripture with you. And the Gospel of John is the best Gospel to do that because it was written that we might come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we have life in his name. That's what John said. The second book back there is called Ultimate Questions. We've had them out on the table and in, in reading sections before. It's, it's not a tract in the typical sense because it's lengthier than that. And there are pictures in it and so on. But it is a great tool that you can give someone that explains the gospel. It basically explains Romans, why we need the gospel. Uh, God's righteousness, how we get God's righteousness, how God's righteousness impacts us, how we are to live out God's righteousness. It's all in there. And uh, so there's 50 of them on that back there as well. So take them if you plan on using them. Don't take them to stick on, you know, on a shelf, never to be moved, but take some of those and, and use them. Now, we're going to take 10 minutes and go into the next section because next week I would never be able to finish the next section if I didn't start it today. Okay, and that's verses 8 through 15. 8 through 15. Let me read that. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that, that we may mutually be, be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So in verses 1 through 7, that was Paul's official rapport with the church. Here's who I am, according to God's calling, message, ministry. Verses 8 through 15 is more of his personal rapport with them. And in it, he, he is, you know, he's, he writes about his personal plans and feelings and desires f 
for the saints. He wants the church to understand his intense concern for them and for their, their well-being and their growth in the Lord, and that he plans to come and visit them as soon as possible. I mean, he wants them to know. He wants to communicate at a personal level. I love you guys. I don't know you all, but I love you in the Lord, and I want to come and minister to you. Uh, I, want to, I want to be a help to you. So in the second section, you know, uh, in his comments, he gets very personal uh, with the believers, and we can identify what I'm referring to as Paul's spirit in ministry. That's, uh, of course, what you have on your sermon insert there. In these verses, I'm going to recognize seven things, seven spirits, if you will, uh, spirit in ministry that Paul has. I could identify more, by the way, but I'm going to keep it at the perfect number, the complete number, which is seven in the scripture. So we'll just cover that in the remaining part of today and then next week. So the first of these characteristics that marked Paul as a, you know, a good minister of the gospel, one who was faithful to Christ, fulfilling his uh, ministry that uh, Christ had graciously given to him, is a spirit of thankfulness. A spirit of thankfulness. That's verse 8. Look at it again. First. By the way, this is interesting. He says, first. What do you expect somewhere in this paragraph? A second. He never gets to a second. It just gets all wrapped up in first. At first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So as he, he finds himself thinking of the church in Rome, the first thing he did was to thank God for them. Thank you, God, for the, these people in Rome that have believed in your son that you know, are spreading their faith to other people. And, you know, this is characteristic of Paul. It is. He characteristically thanks God or, you know, states a, a bless, blessing on God for the work that God is doing in the lives of those people to whom he wrote, to those that he felt he had a responsibility as an apostle and shepherd to. You see it, I'll just give you some references. I'm not going to look all these up for time's sake, but you can... You can write them down. I'll say them slow enough. If you want, you can write them down. 1 Corinthians 1.4. Kind of a surprising one when you think about the church in Corinth. God, thanking God for them as saints. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Philippians 1.3. Colossians 1.3. You find a... It's all at the beginning of the letters, isn't it? It's all introductory comments. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2. Second Timothy, not writing to a church, but to a brother in the Lord. Second Timothy 1 and verse 3. And then one more, Philemon, verses 4 and 5. Philemon four and five. The only letter really where this such a thanksgiving is noticeably absent is in his letter to the Galatian churches. And the reason for that was because he was so righteously angered over their 
deserting the gospel for another gospel, which is not really another gospel. He says it in one six. I'm I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you for another gospel, which is really not another gospel because there can only be one gospel, one good news message, and it's the message that I've shared with you. And he goes on to say, if anyone else comes to you and shares a different gospel, reject them. Let them be anathema. And he says, even if I were to come to you or an angel from heaven were to come to you with a different gospel than I've already shared with you, let them be anathema. So they were deserting it, and he was not thankful for them. I mean, he just takes out the shotgun, loads up the barrels, and starts shooting at them for their desertion of the gospel because they were adding works to grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, the fact that the, uh, of the believers, you know, the faith of the believers being spread, that was evidence, right? It was evidence of God's grace working among them. As people, they visited Rome, you know, and, and when people visited Rome, they heard about this group of people that claimed to be followers of this one called Jesus, the, you know, the Christ. And, and then as they would leave Rome, they would be so impressed by what they had seen and heard in those people and from those people that they would tell others. They would tell other people about the church in Rome and their faith in Christ. And, and so the message of their faith was being spread to the Roman Empire. This is, is not meaning that everyone within the church was a missionary going to other parts of the Roman Empire. The message of their faith is going out, but by, that's by people that would come to Rome and then would leave and take that message with them. That's kind of the way it's supposed to work. We reach people where we're at, and then they go, and they impact people where they're at. And it gets around the world that way. Hmm. And he says, actually, that uh, you know, their message was going out to all the world. All the world? You've got to know, that's hyperbolic. What, what does that mean? It's an overstatement. Intentional overstatement. He doesn't actually mean that the gospel was going out to all the world, like Asia and China and Russia and Siberia and Australia and all of that. I mean, most of those places weren't even known. America, uh, not yet. What he means by that is simply that their faith, they were sharing it with others. And then those others would take their faith their own faith in, and take it to other parts of the empire. He's not lying. He's making an overstatement for the sake of effect. And that's a good effect. Our faith ought to be going out. It ought to be being spread. Now, I have three things that I, I will share, but I'll just wait till next week since about the spirit of thankfulness that really stood out to me so this is kind of the joy of going through a book like this. We, we just get to start and stop. And it's not always going to end where I think it's going to end because I plan and prepare a certain amount and I think, yeah, I'm going to get that done. It doesn't always work that way. And, and you all laugh at me and that's okay. I can, I can take the laughter. 
as long as we just continue to walk through the scripture together and learn from the Lord. So hopefully we have learned, and more than just information about Paul and the church, hopefully we've learned what God wants us to be by his grace given to us. Slaves of Christ, recognize that we are called saints by God's grace that's happened, not because we deserve it. It's undeserved always. It's by God's choice, not our choice. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you to go and bear fruit for my name. And that's what you saw in his ministry. Hey, hey, Peter, Andrew, come follow me. Hey, hey, James, John, you, you come follow me. Hey, Matthew, leave your textbook. Come for me. It's his choosing. It's his choosing. He chose you? Yes. Called. And we have the great commission. Go out in all the world. While going, make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the ends of the earth. Much that we can learn. And by the way, We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. We should have a spirit of thankfulness. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for our time together in it. Produce within us what you want to produce. <laughs> you know what each of us needs, and so we pray that you do just that. Do whatever is needed in each one of us so that you might receive glory. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen.